Welcome to the Hills. And all of you that are a part of the Hills online family, we welcome you as well. And a special shout out to our seniors. Thank you for leading us today in worship, in song, in prayer, and in your thoughts. Uh, I know this has been a really crazy season, and I'm so sad that so many of the things that seniors look forward to have been taken away from you. But just know that I admire the resilience you have shown, the way you've adapted and had the best possible attitude. Uh, You are learning life lessons that are going to bless you the rest of your life. See, at the Hills, we really do believe in students, that they're not the church of tomorrow. You are the church of today. In fact, if I was to ask all of you listening to me, when did you come to Christ? The overwhelming majority of you would say, I did before I was 18 years old. We got to witness that again this week. It was a beautiful thing to see uh, Jaden Decker. Jaden has been coming to church with her aunt, and she heard me speak a few weeks ago about giving your life to Christ and being baptized, and she said, I want to do that, and she got in touch with Adam Herndon, one of our student ministers, and she made that precious decision this week, and by the way, I just want to take a moment to say to anyone listening, if you have not been baptized, I want you to type the word surrender right now to that number that's on the screen. We want to talk to you about what it means to give your life to Christ, to come under the Lordship of Christ, to profess His name, and to be publicly declared His follower by being baptized. And we love to see that with our young people. And that's why we pour so many resources into children's ministry, into student ministry. It's why we're providing so much material online right now, because that's when so many of us came to Jesus. Now that reminds me of a story of the Sunday school teacher asking her young class about if they wanted to go to heaven. She said, hold up your hand if you want to go to heaven. And everyone did except one little boy. She said, don't you want to go to heaven? He said, well, I thought you were getting up a group to go right now. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? We all want to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go right away. Well, what I want to do today is I want to cause us to rethink this whole idea of going to heaven. Did you know the phrase go to heaven is not found one time in the Bible, not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. In fact, you probably noticed that's why we're not calling this series going home. We're calling this series home is coming. Now, I do understand the Bible does teach that when we die, we go to be with the Lord. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paul said in Philippians 1, uh, my desire is to depart and go and be with Christ, but it's better for you if I stay. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we long to be released from our bodies to go and be with the Lord. So the Bible does talk about going to be with the Lord. But when it comes to heaven, the Bible doesn't talk so much about heaven waiting for our arrival. It talks about us waiting for the arrival of heaven. Uh, Let me show you that. For example, at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, this is part of John's vision. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout 
from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Now, in John's vision, did you notice heaven comes down? What if heaven is a place on earth? Now, remember, the Bible was written in a context. And the dominant world view in the days of the New Testament was influenced by Greek philosophy, people like Plato. And the dominant worldview was this, that material things were evil, that only that which was spirit was good, that somehow the real goal was almost a disembodied kind of bliss. Now, this had two huge implications on two critical pieces of Christian theology. One was the doctrine of incarnation. Now, today we say, or we argue that Jesus, who was God and man, our current culture says, well, yeah, I think he's a man. I'm not sure he's God. But in the first century, the big debate was Jesus was God, but he couldn't have been a man. Because, again, the worldview said matter is evil. And so people said, yeah, he appeared to be a man, but he was a spirit being if he was God. And and so the early church had to deal with this heresy. In fact, John said in his first letter, Anyone that denies that Jesus came in the flesh is the Antichrist. Now, that's a strong word. So that was one way that worldview affected Christian teaching. The other thing was the doctrine of heaven. Because if matter is evil, then heaven must be some kind of a spiritual, non-material realm. Now, do you understand 2,000 years later, we still deal with this. That in most of the books, most of the art, most of the movies about heaven, you don't get a place. You get some kind of a foggy, misty experience with a bunch of spirits floating around. Now, I understand because this current creation is under a curse that it's understandable why some would see escape from this world and from the material as heaven. But I want you to remember something. The Bible doesn't start in Genesis 3 where the creation got cursed. The Bible starts in Genesis 1, where God created everything and called it good. And God's original intent was to live in intimate fellowship with humankind on a good, curse-free earth. Now, it is true Genesis 3 happened, that the sin came, that the fall came, that the curse came. But did Genesis 3 cause God to abandon His announced purpose in Genesis 1? And the answer is no. Throughout the Scripture, the promised future for God's people is not a non-earth, but a new earth. See, I think it's significant the Bible starts and the Bible ends with God dwelling with His people in a garden without any evil. That the Bible predicts the ultimate restoration movement. Look at how Peter talks about this in Acts 3. For he, it means Jesus, must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things. As God promised long ago, through his holy prophets. Now notice two things about this verse. Number one, this is not a new idea. Peter is saying that from the beginning, all through the scriptures, God has been promising what? Go back to the first of the verse. 
He's been promising the final restoration of all things, not the destruction of all things, but the restoration of all things. Now, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 19. He says, when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is promising a special place of honor for the 12 apostles. When is this honor going to be given? Go back. When the world is made new. The Greek word there is palagenesia. Uh, In other words, pali, again, genesia, beginning. When Genesis again happens. That's what the scriptures are pointing to. We were made to live with God in Eden. And God isn't going to allow the enemy to force him to go to some kind of plan B because plan A got destroyed. By the way, that is why you may have not noticed this, but go back and read the details about the building of the tabernacle and the building of the temple. And you'll notice there's garden images all in the design. Why? Because when you came to the tabernacle, when you came to the temple, when you came to the place to be with God, the image was that you were coming back to a garden. Now look at the prophet Isaiah. God speaks and says through him, Look, I'm creating new heavens and a new earth, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. Be glad, rejoice for, forever in my creation. And look, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. Her people will be a source of joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that sound like Revelation 21? That all along, God has been promising, God has been foretelling of this day when we will get Eden back. God is going to do for the whole world what He did for Jesus in the resurrection. Our future is not non-earth. Our future is new earth. Peter mentions that in 2 Peter 3. We're looking forward to the new heavens and new earth He has promised. A world filled with God's righteousness. And so I want you to understand that when heaven comes, we're going to receive a new earth. Where is this new earth? Well, you're on it. <laughs> kind of. You see, God's original plan was not a failed experience. The next coming of Jesus is going to bring the complete redemption of everything under the curse, including God's creation. Paul alludes to this in Romans chapter 8. All creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, some of you have gone through childbirth and there is groaning, but there's great hope involved as well. Paul says creation is hoping. Now, why is creation hoping if its future is annihilation? Now, you're saying, oh, wait a second. 2 Peter 3 says that just as the world was destroyed by water in the days of Noah, it's going to be destroyed by fire. Yes, but was the world completely destroyed by the flood? No, the world was cleansed 
by the water so that God could begin again. And that's what's going to happen when Jesus returns. The world is going to be purged. That the future of creation is not annihilation. It is purification. Now, again, since all we've ever known is a fallen world, it's understandable we would equate salvation with escape from this world. We wouldn't think that way if we had ever seen Eden. Uh, several years ago, I had the privilege of being in Paris with my wife, and one of the highlights of my trip was we went on a tour of the incredible Cathedral of Notre Dame. Now, this cathedral is almost a thousand years old. And so for centuries, soot and smoke from the candles and grime collected on the exterior. And it was dark and it was dingy. And they came along later and they sandblasted the entire exterior. And it became a new cathedral. There were details in the carvings that had been missed for centuries that were revealed. Now, something like that is going to happen at the return of of Jesus. We saw earlier in Revelation, John said, I saw heaven coming down like a bride. Now look at the very next verse. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Now please notice, he does not say, look, I am making all new things. No, he said, I'm making everything new. Now, I don't like to do this, but I'm going to for a second go Greek on you. Now, I don't think you have to read Greek to go to heaven. You may not be able to talk to anybody, but there were two Greek words in the New Testament for new. One meant new like it's never existed before. The other meant new like you get your kitchen remodeled. You say to your friend, come see my new kitchen. It's not that it's never existed before, but it's been redone and made more beautiful. That's this word. Let me tell you another cool time of when it's used. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, anyone who was in Christ is a new creation. When you came to Christ, when you surrendered to Him, when you were baptized, you didn't become a new person that's never existed before. No, but the Holy Spirit became into your life and started to perfect you and to create you into the person you were always intended from the beginning to be. You're being made new. And what's happening to you is going to happen to all of creation. The heaven that now is one day will make a dramatic move to earth because here's the thing nobody can restore a masterpiece better than god can okay now i'm sure you have a lot of questions about the new heaven and the new earth and we're going to answer some of the questions in another sermon because we can't get to all of them today but i know you're wondering well how is the new earth going to be like and not like the current earth well i think for one thing it's going to be more habitable you know we only live on 10 percent of this planet what isn't water or mountain or desert is where we live. I think in the new earth we'll be able to live on much more of it and enjoy the beauty that was intended before the fall and before the flood. Uh, one difference is uh, there's not going to be any marriage in the new earth. And we'll talk about that more in a future sermon. But the single biggest difference in the new earth is going to be that the curse is removed. And we're finally going to get to see what something looks like when God calls it good. Remember that? Genesis 1, God would do this, God would do that. God would say, that's good. We're finally going to get to see what God calls good. Do you really believe 
we have experienced all the taste, that we've seen all the colors, that we've heard all the musical notes that an infinite God could create. Oh, the new earth is going to just absolutely engage and delight and astound all of our senses. And by the way, on the new earth, we're not going to be in one un ending church service okay i'll talk about that some next week too but let me just tell you we're going to work on the new earth we're going to play uh, we're going to be with our friends uh, we're going to learn and and my friends we are going to eat oh that's right there's going to be food in the new earth it's amazing how much the bible talks about food in the new earth in revelation 22 there's going to be a tree with the fruit that's for the healing of the nations in revelation 19 the the coming of the heaven and the new earth is going to be like a marriage feast jesus said they'll come from all the lands and they'll sit at the table with abraham isaac and jacob at a feast in fact jesus remember the night that he instituted the lord's supper said i won't eat it again till i eat it with you anew in the new and coming kingdom. You see, good parties have good food, and we know they like to party in heaven. i tell you something else in the new earth. There's going to be animals. And God just has a special affection for animals. He made them, and He called them good. In Genesis 6, he made sure that Noah got the animals on the boat to be saved. In, in Exodus 20, the Sabbath wasn't just for people. God said, you make sure that the animals get a rest. I've always liked Jonah chapter 4. Jonah's outside of Nineveh. He's pronounced a curse. God in his mercy has uh, relented because the people have uh, been, uh, repented. And Jonah's upset. And, and God says, Jonah... There's 120,000 people and a lot of cattle in that town. Should I go destroy them because you're in a bad mood? Just because you're pouting? Should I kill all the cows? God loves animals. Uh, Psalm 148 says that all living things, the, the domesticated, the wild, the, the creatures on the ground, the birds in the air, they should praise the Lord. Psalm 150 says everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Have you ever thought about the animal creation and the way that they bring glory to God? Now, I'm not sure about cats. I just thought to tell you. Somebody sent me this picture the other day to change my mind. Here is a cat watching me preach. I think the cat is asleep, in my personal opinion. Now, here's why. I'm just going to lay it out for you, okay? Dogs, if you feed a dog, you care for a dog, you give a dog a home, a dog will think you're God. You take a cat, you feed it, you care for it, you give it a home, a cat will think, I must be God. Cats have too much pride to go to heaven. Okay, if they don't repent, I don't think they have a chance. But God's grace is huge. Maybe he could even redeem cats. But they're going to have to get along with all the other animals. I mean, the wolf is going to lay down with the lamb and the lion. In the new earth, we're going to see species that have gone extinct. Maybe we're going to see new life forms that haven't even been created yet. Now listen, we're going to work, we're going to play, we're going to learn, we're going to have animals, we're going to have great food. Doesn't that sound a whole lot cooler than a bunch of spirits floating around in a fog bank? And when is this going to happen? Well, Peter clearly associates the arrival of the new earth with the return of Jesus. Now that raises a question we'll talk about later. Well, if the new earth hasn't come, what about all the people that have died? Well, what does the Scripture say? They go to be with the Lord. And your loved one is with Jesus now. And we'll talk more about that. But here's the thing. 
The kingdom has been inaugurated, but it has not been fully consummated. The new earth and the new heaven are still coming. And I want you to know that the future of the universe walked out of the tomb on that first Easter morning. And when Jesus returns, He's going to bring to the whole creation what His resurrection brought to Him. Now I want to look at one more really important verse because sometimes people think this is teaching that we go to heaven. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. A a couple of thoughts here. One is that when Jesus returns, we are going to meet him in the air because the earth is going to be purged with fire to remove the curse. But then, see, every first century reader would have understood what image Paul is saying. In those days, when a king, when a conqueror, when a Caesar who had won a great battle came to a city, all the people came out to see him, not to leave, but to bring him, to welcome him back into his home. That's what's going to happen. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. The earth is going to be purged with fire. And then we're going to come back with Jesus as he sets up his kingdom. And his glory fills the earth. Satan's defeat will be total. He'll be exiled as a deposed dictator. And Jesus will take his rightful place as Lord of all. And Peter says, no wonder we're looking forward to this. So, this may be new to you. Maybe you've never thought about this before. But I think this is so exciting. That our future is not non-earth. Our future is new earth. Heaven is a place on earth. But let's get real pragmatic for a moment. How does that change my life right now? Well, here's three thoughts. And here's the first. That the new earth renews my hope for what will be. See, my hope is not just in the partial triumph of Christ. You see, if God had to get rid of the earth because Satan's sin had polluted it, in some degree you could argue Satan won. Satan had a victory. There was one thing Satan did that God could not redeem. No, there is not one single atom of God's creation that Satan illegitimately claimed that is going to go unredeemed. God is going to have it all back. Paradise lost will be paradise restored. And like Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, Christ is going to reconcile everything back to God. And that excites me. The new earth helps me realize how cosmic, how huge the victory of Christ really is. There is nothing sin has polluted that God cannot restore and redeem. The sword is going to beat it into a plowshare. I, I got an image of this recently. I, I, I heard about a, an old missile silo outside of Topeka, Kansas, that used to house a nuclear warhead. It's been turned into an Airbnb. I'm not making this up. You can go and you can find a place of rest in a place that used to be made for a place of war. That's what God is going to do to the whole earth. We are finally going to have the home God always wanted us to have. The new earth renews my hope for what will be. And then second, the new earth informs and shapes 
who I want to be. You see, hope should motivate holiness. And let me say this to you. One of the reasons I think we struggle so much with, with captivating sin is that we have too inadequate a view of heaven. You're struggling with the pornography addiction. You're trying to resist the temptation to get on that website and click on that link that you have no business being on. Well, you know what? You need a more robust view of your future than some spirit floating in the fog. You need a robust, vibrant, triumphant picture of your future in your redeemed body on God's redeemed earth. This is why every time the scripture talks about our future, it follows it with a call to ethic. So, for example, Peter said, we're looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. And the very next verse, and so, dear friends, while you're waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. You see what Peter's saying? When you grasp the reality, the, the hugeness of, of the new heaven and the new earth, you are motivated to be a pure and blameless person. The new earth helps me turn from sin. And by the way, it also helps me turn toward sinners. I I remember reading some years ago about a man named Rick Bowles. He's a physician in the Northeast. He was one of the very first people to show up at the bombing during the Boston Marathon. You see, when he was a 23-year-old med student in New York City, he lived through 9-11. And he remembered thinking, when I become a doctor, if something like that ever happens, I'm not going to run away from it. I'm going to run toward it. And he heard those two giant booms, and he was one of the first doctors to show up to take care of those who were hurting. That's what the vision of the New Earth does for us. It doesn't cause us to want to run away from the world we're in, but to run to it, to engage it. The new earth compels me to pursue what ought to be. Now, this is really big because what we hope for determines what we live for right now. You see... Some act like the only mission of the church is to save souls and get them out of here. To help people fly away and let's just let the world go to hell. Let's just save some souls. Now, don't misunderstand me. If you heard the first message in this series, you know I believe every person needs to be right with God. And the only way to be right with God is to surrender to Jesus Christ and have your sin covered in His blood. I'll never apologize for being bold and clear about that. But please understand, when Jesus came and He preached good news, the good news wasn't just forgiveness of sins. Jesus' good news was the kingdom of God is near. We are called to be witnesses to the coming reality by confronting what is for what ought to be. You see, it's because we believe in the new earth where there's not going to be any hunger that we collect food at all of our campuses right now to give to those that are hungry during this pandemic. It's because we believe that in the new earth there's not going to be any sickness that right now 190 of us gathered on our campuses last week and we gave blood and we stand with those who are fighting sickness because 
we believe that right now we should give people a glimpse of what will be. And this is why the first weekend of June we're going to have our annual renew offering. And we're going to collect money for the hungry. We're going to collect money for kids who are growing up in troubled homes. We're going to collect money to help women who want to get out of the sex industry. Why are we doing this? Because our conviction of what will be compels us to pursue right now what ought to be. And this is why last week I spoke out like I did about the injustice in Georgia revolving Ahmed Arbery. And I want to thank you for all the support I got. And I want to say again, I wasn't making a political statement when I speak out against racial injustice. I'm making a kingdom statement. My vision of the new earth is for every tongue and every ethnicity and every tribe come together in peace and harmony, bowed to the Lordship of Christ. And if that's what we believe the future is going to be, then we fight for that kind of future right now in the present. We are to be to the world a glimpse of coming attractions. Our confidence in the world that will be compels us to make a difference in the world that currently is. Because Jesus is going to make everything new. And friend, He starts with you. Making you new. Because you and I are the proof that Jesus can restore anything. And we're the promise that He will. Now pray with me, please. So God, I just pray that not only will this teaching today encourage our hearts, but it will convict our spirits and our wills. That we won't just take this as a teaching to think about, but a teaching that will motivate us to be about the pursuit of the kingdom of God. Help us, God, as individuals and as a body of Christ to reflect and to model what will be the new reality when Lord Jesus sets up His kingdom on this earth. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving our sins, for covering our sin in your blood. And thank you for your victory on the cross, which is so huge. It restores everything. Everything is going to be reconciled to God. And we are finally going to see what good looks like. And so, God, help us to model to our neighbor what good really is. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.